Welcome to Data Dialogues. Each Data Dialogue is a three-part conversation. The first two segments individually highlight a person working with environmental data that acts as a starting place for our group conversation with both guests. By talking through who's using what kinds of data and how, we're working to personalize the landscape that environmental data is sitting in so that it can be more accessible and useful to everyone. I'm your host, Angela Eaton. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Natasha Udagama. Natasha serves as the Community and International Relations Manager at Thriving Earth Exchange, an organization that brings together local leaders and scientists to work together on environmental solutions. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. So just to start out, would you tell me about a favorite place of yours outdoors, and how do you connect this favorite place of yours outdoors to your work? That's an excellent question. Lately, since I've been mostly holed up in my house, my new house, that is. Ooh, congratulations. Maryland. Thank you. Um, I've been really enjoying the fact that our house faces up some woods and um, just literally just watching um, the you know animals, the birds um, who sort of roam in the woods there uh, has been something that I've really enjoyed in the last four months that we've been here. Um, but otherwise, um, I generally enjoy, you know, being on the beach, um, being in the mountains. Um, those are two of my favorite landscapes. I wouldn't say I have a specific area, though, um, that I uh, that is my go to as such. Beach, mountain, woods. Beach, mountain, woods. <laughs> okay. How do you keep your connection to something that is within the within your environment that you love? with you as you're doing your work? I think having that connection to, you know, the environment enables me to sort of stay grounded in what I do. I think when I come across any challenges in the work that I do, which is quite often, uh, just sort of hearkening back to the the quiet, the peacefulness that I find in nature, um, that I've always found in nature, really helps me to... Um, remember why it is that I'm doing what I'm doing and and how important it is that we continue to sort of keep that connection and that groundedness in order to ensure that that our communities are are staying um, healthy and happy and um, resilient to um, everything that has that the world is throwing at at us these days both as personally and as communities so one of the things that you're talking about here is this connection and and what one of the things that you do at Thriving Earth Exchange is uh, connecting people that are in communities having an environmental question to scientists that may know how to answer that environmental question. Tell me a little bit about yourself at Thriving Earth Exchange and, and what you're doing there. Sure, sure. Um, so I've been with the Thriving Earth Exchange team now for a little over seven years. I came to it uh, with a background in um, doing communities early warning systems in South and Southeast Asia. So really trying to understand how public-private partnerships were helping to develop community-based early warning systems. And I was able to use that background in partnerships and community-first, community-led initiatives to Thriving Earth Exchange. 
which I think sort of helped to um, develop our now, our approach in community science. And so what I do at Thriving Earth Exchange, one of the first things was um, essentially connecting with communities, developing partnerships with what we call community serving organizations to encourage them to talk about what science could do um, and how science could support community priorities to develop impactful and meaningful solutions and tools for those communities, um, and really try to leverage the um, expertise and the science of AGU to work with communities of place, of interest, of fate, of, um, of advocates, um, to advance those community priorities related to environmental issues, um, sustainability, resilience, pollution, natural hazards, climate change, and natural resources um, to develop tools and solutions that are impactful there. It's a mouthful, for sure. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot there. So I want to connect all of this work back to how communities are participating in science and, and what communities are doing of their mm -hmm. own that is scientific. I'd seen a talk that you gave um, where you talked about the loading dock of science. And what I got from that was that that is this idea of handing science out and educating out rather than receiving local knowledge in. I'm wondering if you can dig into that just a little bit more. Well, the loading dock of science basically means, um, you know, providing the scientific um, enterprise, the, um, the knowledge, the data that we've gathered as, as scientists to those in the public and beyond about what science can do for them, for their communities, etc. And there is still a place for that. However, that traditional model totally leaves out and disacknowledges the fact that every community comes to the table with a lot of lived experience, a lot of traditional knowledge that is oftentimes discounted as not being scientific enough because it doesn't hold true to being part of the, the Western conception of uh, scientific knowledge. So it's not part of how we as Westerners and in, in modern society decide how data is produced. So what Thriving Earth Exchange is doing through community science is really trying to level the playing field as much as possible by bringing the scientists together with the community leads, saying that they are going to work together rather than one for the other, as is typically the case with scientists coming into communities and being lauded as the experts, the people who know everything and are going to tell us what to do. Um, so we're really trying to turn that on its head a little bit and trying to bring uh, community leads and scientists together in a way that is equitable, open and honest and all about listening actively and learning honestly. Uh, because oftentimes that's the that's the biggest issue with a lot of our community leads is that they're not being heard. They've never been heard. And um, the scientists who are specifically selected and or recommended and then selected by those community leaders to work on these projects are those that are willing and able to listen and put their their own knowledge aside for a moment just so they can understand what's happening, what's what has happened in that community and what those community leaders actually, what they know about their community. The science disconnect that you're talking about here, is that equally shared? Because I'm, 
I'm thinking, you know, you have this great program bringing these two together, but one person is credentialed and has has a voice already within how regulation happens, how policy happens, how we experience science. And the other group, the other side of that, they also hold incredibly valuable information. But when you cast that as not science, how do we then have the communication go in both directions? That's an excellent question. And it's definitely one that we're constantly grappling with. Yes, you know, the scientists do come in with the, you know, the background, with the certificates and the labels that oftentimes a lot of community leads don't have. It's a lot harder with a neighborhood community leader who is doing multiple jobs in their community, is doing childcare and, you know, is passionate about the impact of fracking on human health in their community. But, doesn't, but isn't being paid and isn't being acknowledged as that expert. The other task is that a lot of these community leads are very wary of the scientists um, because oftentimes they've been on the, um, the, the receiving end of being extracted from rather than being you know, provided for. So it is still a question that we grapple with a lot. And one of the things that we're trying to do is provide um, equal opportunity to um, both the community leads and the scientists to obtain funding, like providing funding through in 2021, a neighborhood fund where um, there's there are no stipends that are still being provided to either one of them. Um, it still doesn't necessarily address the fact that, you know, one of them, what scientists um, most of the time are being um, paid exponentially more for even being, and, and have the privilege to uh, volunteer their time with these communities. And it's something that we still struggle with, but we're hoping that, you know, um, the more of these partnerships we do, uh, the more we can develop uh, sponsoring partners, funders will come to us um, with the opportunity to provide either acknowledgement for those community leads or AGU itself will start to provide um, acknowledgement for uh, the leadership, the expertise that those community leaders themselves have and can bring to and are bringing to these community science projects. What are some novel ways you've seen communities use this environmental data? Either the environmental data that they themselves are producing or that right. they're producing with the science in combination? Well, I, I think some of the novel ways that we've seen that, that communities are using the data is by advocating for changes in policy in their community, trying to um, use the, the science that they're getting to uh, prove why um, flood mitigation is really important in their particular area or why a waste transfer station is debilitating an environmental justice community. Even in one particular case, a uh, community leader said that just working with a scientist and getting um, knowledge about some of the scientific terminology that they were constantly being bombarded with by their local air quality district and being able to speak knowledgeably um, about those various factors, various pathogens and, and, and the like, um, enabled them to um, ha hold their own, you know, while talking to air quality uh, experts in their district. It's really learning another language. That's right. That's right. You know, this all this terminology is 
uh, information that she knows and that she has, but now can communicate in a way that will be understood in this other area. Right. And she can then also communicate back to her community about why it is that the certain, you know, certain things are, you know, adversely affecting their community. If we're talking about generating data, is it more, you you talked about policy change. Is that happening in the very local jurisdiction? Or do you find that people are wanting to submit that to regulatory agencies or other places where it's proving an issue? All of the above. And I would say that, you know, it's not just about generating new data. I mean, oftentimes I think our our society, the scientific enterprise is really focused on generating new data, doing discovery more than um, essentially listening to and repurposing the knowledge that we already have, both scientific and otherwise, for the, the use that communities actually have of it. There have been um, a couple of instances in um, the southeastern Ohio, southwestern Pennsylvania region um, with our hydraulic fracturing projects um, in that region where the scientists who've been linked up, there are two scientists that have um, linked up in both Pennsylvania and Ohio. And in both cases, they um, they have been very involved with the community, visiting them in person prior to the pandemic, um, working side by side with them to get the word out to uh, local officials, national officials, doing tours with them. And then by doing that work with those community leaders, other communities have actually seen the work they've done, particularly um, I'm thinking about uh, the work in Cambridge and Barnesville, Ohio, where um, another community, Youngston, Ohio, essentially saw the work that this particular scientist was doing with their community leads um, around water quality and said, hey, you know, we'd like to do that for our community. How can we get be a part of that? And so I think the beauty of what is happening with the community science movement in our experience is this word of mouth, people actually seeing the impacts um, in their communities and in their neighboring communities and then speaking to that. Are, are these administrators within local townships and, and cities? Who are these? Who are some of the community leads that we're talking about? The community leads that we're talking about tend to be part of advocacy groups. Um, in that particular region, they've been part of advocacy groups or interest groups who have um, been stymied by you know, policies and have seen the adverse effects of um, fracking on their communities and are you know, passionately um, wanting to understand what they can do to clean up the water or the air as it might be. So I'd say it's mostly advocacy interest groups um, that have, uh, you know, sort of in that region, but otherwise it's been the community leads. Um, it's even been town managers who have Uh, spread the word to other town managers. Um, I recently had a discussion with a group of environmental, the environmental team of a county in Pennsylvania who said, I'd like you to talk to a a group of other um, counties that do this kind of work because I know that we've been talking about um, sort of in a pie in the sky sort of way, the fact that we would love to have 
love to be able to get um, pro bono scientific support or technical support and um, being kind of blown away that we actually exist. Um, and so it actually exists. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually, just in the last couple of days, I've had this conversation actually um, with, and today as well with, uh, you know, and and it's always very eye-opening. Actually, the conversation I had just before this call was with a rural um, institute in Oklahoma that's working with like rural communities. And they're, you know, saying that one of the, one of the major issues with work, maybe working in the way that we work is that a lot of these community leads just have way too much going on. So I would say that it's not just about generating new data. It's about bringing together various ways of knowing. Unfortunately, we call that various ways of knowing plus science, but... But science is a way of knowing. Yes, science is a way of knowing, exactly. Um, and so sci- the, the science that is being done in various different spheres, including in the academic sphere, together to develop solutions and tools that basically either have already been do- made or done before, or you know, adapting them so that they work in specific places um, that they have not necessarily worked before, mainly because they haven't taken into account the community knowledge, the community lived experience and that place in the past. So we just got into this uh, place where we're talking about change and how that change happens. And you are talking about change within science. Your data dialogue partner does that change within the legal system. And so uh, I'd like to introduce you to Jill Habig. Jill is an attorney focused on public law and affirmative litigation. She founded the Public Rights Project, a nonprofit that empowers state, local, and tribal governments to fight for their civil rights and for economic and environmental justice by providing them with the talent, resources, and other needs to proactively enforce their residents' legal rights. Do you have any sparking thoughts for Jill? What do you see as fundamental to community resilience um, with in in light, yeah, in light of all of the multiple stressors, climate change, um, disasters that are affecting communities? Um, what is fundamental to communities being resilient in your opinion? I think that you're going to have a fantastic conversation. I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, I can't wait. I wonder now, what are the ways that we can find out more about you and your work online? Yes. So I would um, definitely point you towards thrivingearthexchange.org. That is our program's website. Um, If you want to learn more about um, how to apply as a community, that information is on the website, um, and we welcome communities of all types, particularly those that might not necessarily have had access or access to the sciences. We accept applications on a quarterly basis. And also for your international listeners, for those of you that might be interested in adapting community science in your respective regions and countries, please also reach out to me about um how you can adapt our community science approach for your respective locations. And I'd be happy to, to help you in that process. My next thought is, I hope that there's some place that I can go on Thriving Earth Exchange and look at a whole bunch of projects and see oh, yeah. all the information. Is that true? Tell me that's true. 
Oh yeah, of course. There's um, if you go to if you go to our main page and you click on the first link at the top um, called projects and you scroll down to all projects and then if you go to you know join us as a scientist and if you are a scientist and you're looking for an opportunity to get involved, here's a plug for the scientists out there. Yes, we have all of those current opportunities um, available and we have so many right now. And if you are a scientist or, you know, whatever, if you're a scientist, if you're a science interested person, um, we have this community science fellowship opportunity, which is sort of what we call basically a project manager, someone who can take a community science project team, both the community leads and the scientists from inception and idea to impact. So following them along the whole trajectory of that six to 18 month project, checking in with them every month, um, making sure that they're on track with their milestones and ultimately on track to completion and impact. I cannot wait to see how this interacts with what Jill's doing. This is gonna be really fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's so nice to talk to you. Likewise, it's been such a pleasure. This segment is one of a three-part conversation series. To listen to Jill Hobbig's individual conversation with me, or to hear our group dialogue with Natasha and Jill, please visit us wherever you listen to your podcasts or at openenvironmentaldata.org. To read a transcript of this episode and to access resources mentioned throughout the show, please take a look at our show notes, which you can find in the caption for this episode or at openenvironmentaldata.org. This podcast was created by Emma Grimm, Angela Eaton, Michelle Cherupka, Shannon Dosmegan, Amelia Williams, and Katie Hoberling, with music by The Westerlies. Data Dialogues is supported by the Open Environmental Data Project, which is funded by the Shuttleworth Foundation.